Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Please Die and their track A Time to Kill off of the 2020 demo. These guys are from Philadelphia. They absolutely fucking destroy everything. It's a shame more people haven't had them on the radar yet. They had an LP which sold out quite quickly on Lionheart Records. We're going to have a link up to that. They're a German label. I think there's going to be a, another pressing of the LP because it came out so quick. So get on the page. Check these guys out. Please die from Philadelphia. And we're going to have links for this shit. Going into the Carl Picaro conversation, we ran short. And when I say short, just shorter than our usual kind of episodes. And I didn't want to leave anybody high and dry who are used to the two and three hour Johns. So what I'm going to do is have our friend Davin, who has an amazing radio show called Mark for Life. We're going to treat a conversation about her new project and why she did it as the entree. And we're going to have Cara Picara, the story behind Breakdown, which literally starts and ends perfectly and leads us great opportunity to come back on part two and start at the beginning of Killing Time as the main course. So for those of you who like a little bit longer, this isn't as long as it usually is, but we didn't leave it totally out. And you get to hear about a great hardcore project, which I think everybody should be checking out. So first course, Davin, Mark for Life, check it the fuck out. We are talking to Davin Bernard, who not only has become like a face and fixture in the Philadelphia hardcore scene since she moved down here, exploding with amazing bands like Eaten Alive. But really the thing that I am most impressed about is her ability to take the COVID time and pivot into an idea that is juxtaposed between the modern internet culture and the flow of an instant gratification mixed with this old school radio show thing. And we even talk about that on this episode with Carl, where he talked about listening to crucial chaos and breakdown playing crucial chaos. So Davin has created Mark for life, which is the best upcoming list of bands, just stuff to rock out to. And it's in a format fixated a little bit like a radio show, but Obviously, it's not on a radio channel, and it comes out bi-monthly. She's got a new episode, episode seven, which is you got to go out and stream it. It's available on all the major platforms from Spotify, Apple Podcasts. She even has her own website, and I love when people who have been in the scene for a long time, you know, she. we're going to do an episode completely on Davin. You hear her whole life story. But I love when someone doesn't give up after the first five or ten years. And I love when someone continues into the third or fourth band. And if you know David, if you've been to Philly shows, just one of the biggest smiling, supportive people in all of Philadelphia hardcore in general. So thank you for coming on the show to talk about Mark for Life real quick. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's quite an intro. <laughs> no, we, we, we always cap up just so you get excited and you feel good and you want to talk about it. So um, <laughs> where where was the... Where was the onus? What was the inspiration? And what was your where was your mind going to bring Mark for Life to fruition? Yeah, so Mark for Life started, I mean, like everyone in 2020, I had nothing but downtime and I was just 
amazed. I, I mean, I guess it wasn't that amazing how much I missed hardcore, but it was like this aching that I could feel in my body, you know, like I've been going to shows for, you know, since I was 12 years old, I'm 38 and um, not being able to hear new bands. Like I just felt so disconnected from, you know, the live element, hearing the new bands coming through, even just my show acquaintances, you know, having them tell me about new releases. I was like, God, this sucks. And I was kind of searching for ways to, you know, reconnect, tap back in. And I think one of the things that really fell out during the pandemic is those people like not your, your closest friends, but the people you talk to outside of a show, you know, I'm never going to call them up and be like, hi, do you want to small talk about hardcore? (laughs) And I really missed that. Um, And I was going through, um, I have all these boxes of old tapes that I've had since I was, you know, an early teen. And there were all these kind of unmarked tapes and I was playing through all of them. And I found one and on it was a recording of this college hardcore radio show that I used to listen to when I was like 13, 14 and 15 from WUNH, which was the University of Southern New Hampshire. Um, And on it was so funny because it was like, you know, the late 90s. So it was like all these, you know, they, they announced like, okay, we've got a brand new release coming from Turmoil. <laughs> it was so hilarious to hear. And I, I kind of kicked back in my kitchen, listened to the whole tape, terrible riffs I forgot existed, the 90s sounds that never come, came back because they're bad. Um, and I was kind of getting misty eyed because I was like, oh, I loved this. And the show was just so incredibly important to me growing up in rural Maine. Um, where, where I'm from originally, um, because I, I wasn't able to get to a lot of shows. I didn't, I definitely really didn't know very many hardcore kids. Hardcore in rural Maine is super spread out, um, especially in the nineties when it was kind of like, I mean, the internet existed, but we weren't really connecting that way. Um, I moved around a lot and being a girl, I wasn't able to connect with people that much. Like there were just so many reasons for me not to know a lot of hardcore kids, um, and not to be finding out a lot about a lot of new bands. And so when I found this radio show, when I I think I was like somewhere between 13 and 14, I had moved from central Maine to southern Maine and I was flipping through the radio one day and I, you know, I was already into hardcore, but it was like a scent in the air that I could never find the source of. Like, I just didn't know how to really dig into it. And I was mostly listening to like old bands from the eighties. I was listening to a lot of old, like late eighties, New York hardcore, which I loved, but like, I had no fucking clue what 90, what was happening in the nineties at all. Um, but I did, you know, I could recognize hardcore when I heard it. So I'm flipping through the radio. I'm like, you know, whatever, 13, 14. And I hear, you know, some nineties hardcore shit. And I was like, Oh my fucking God. Like there is hardcore on the radio. So I'm sitting there like glued to my radio but in order to get it to even come in, I had like the, the like antennas, one of them was broken and I had to literally hold it to get it to come in. So I'm sitting there literally holding my radio, like, oh my God, oh my God, they're playing hardcore. And it was a weekly show and um, it became like the biggest point of connection for me in the years before I was old enough to have friends who had cars to be able to get to shows, was able to meet other hardcore kids. Um, and I tuned in religiously every week. Um, and that's really how I found out about modern hardcore from like age, you know, 13 to probably 15, 16 was this, this weekly college hardcore show where they would play bands of the moment. Um, and so now fast forward to sitting in South Philly a million years later, hearing this tape being like, Oh, I loved that. And I just remembered how connected I felt. 
And I was thinking kind of of how disconnected we all are right now in ways that are really similar to how I grew up where we don't really we're not connected to other hardcore kids generally right now like all our show friends we're not having those small conversations that I miss so much um we're not seeing bands play (laughs) um and I think in the in the internet age we're even when we're hearing about quote unquote hearing about bands we're not really hearing about them we're seeing like a quick story on someone's Instagram or you know something on Twitter and then we forget about it and so I was like you know I feel like right now we're kind of like I was in the 90s as a teenager in the middle of nowhere in Maine, like so disconnected and longing, this intense longing to be connected to the current moment. Not to mention there were all these bands putting out all this sick shit that we're missing. Um, And then I was like, holy shit, I've got to start a radio show. So that's how it happened. (laughs) No, in fact, I love that you give the depth and background because obviously a lot of the listeners may have come from one of two sides whether they're older folks who can reminisce and the mm-hmm. the the scarcity of finding hardcore and constantly looking and also the younger folks who can really just pick up their phone click a button and the entire hardcore catalog in the last 40 years at it's their fingertips so crazy and so yeah. what what really stands out for me is that we find ourselves as we get older in hardcore either standing on some hills that we're willing to die on for mm-hmm. bands we love or you know following these tropes but from the outset of mark for life you have done a really good job of showcasing newer things and mm-hmm. one of the things that i find is important when it comes to hardcore is that we respect our older elder you know the the contributions to the culture but it is the it's on the back of the youth now to carry this mm-hmm. and continue this forward and i really like that you didn't give one particular kind of style any more focus than another and you were able to eventually start showcasing different bands like skinhead and the god's hate and to the point where like now people are premiering stuff on your show which is just fucking fantastic and you're also in keeping with the aesthetic of a radio show you're taking uh, requests and, and <laughs> yeah. it's really cool, man. It really is something special. And I think, and this is something I said, like, it's always wonderful when you, and, and, and you described it so perfectly. When you talk to somebody outside of a show, now it sucks because you kind of know them from a username, but you don't know them as a person. So when you start getting into a really good conversation, which is hard to do because you get about 15 to 20 minutes between bands to do so, When you start Mm -hmm. talking to someone and you start feeling the depth of like what they listen to and what excites them Mm -hmm. and they're not just rattling off the popular bands, but they're checking out new stuff or they're involved in Mm -hmm. old stuff. It gets me excited. Like whenever I'm around someone and they're excited, I get excited. So as you go through and you rattle off everybody in these last seven episodes, I mean, this, this is pretty encompassing of a lot of different things going on. Yeah. I, Oh, sorry. No, no. And I just appreciate the eye that doesn't just want to focus on, hey, if I put these bands on this crowd or, hey, I want to look super cool. So I'm going to find the most rare thing that like, you know, was recorded on an A track just to be that I know more. I love that you just gave and, and to use a modern parlance, like you gave a platform of mm-hmm. in a modern face, but with a old aesthetic. And it just it, it comes out real it comes out honest 
and I and and it went immediately from something that was like, oh, oh, cool, what's this? And they're like, oh, Davin's doing this. And Bob's like, yeah, just check this out. And I'm like, yeah, I checked it out. And now when a new episode comes, my feed is full of Mark for Life, and it's just awesome that. <laughs> so what were you what were you thinking? Were you thinking like there was no rules? Were you thinking like I really want to showcase these bands? Like where was your thought process? Yeah. So a lot there's a there's a lot there so the requests was like like you said Heart, uh, mark for life is not on the radio i call it a radio show because it's done in the footsteps of the great radio show i listened to growing up and so many people you know of some of the older generations we all had i get so many people writing to me from all around the world saying i had a hardcore radio show that i listened to growing up oh i'm from the 80s and i listened to it. i mean everyone has a story from a certain era where, you know, something like this turned you on to so many bands. And I really wanted to be able to bring that, you know, to the modern age with the, like you said, the vintage feel, but also the radio show that I listened to took requests. And it was such a vital part of my life as much as the radio show, because I had almost no way to really participate in hardcore. And I wanted to so badly, like I, you know, I'm 14 years old. I can't be in a band. I can't get to shows. I barely have friends who know about it, but I'm obsessed. And, um, and I'm really into what I'm into, which is, you know, honestly still how I feel. So I, I remember I was listening to the show one day and they were like, all right, you know, if you've got a request call, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I can make a request. And it was this feeling of like knowing that there were kids you know, sitting in all their bedrooms all over New England, probably listening just like I was. And I was like, I need them to hear the things that I love. I have to share this. Um, and so I would call in. They It became like a feature on the show because I was, I mean, full on obsessed with this radio show. And I used to call in 25 to Life, keeping it real every week because it was my favorite <laughs> song. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, I love New York hardcore and I loved 25 to Life back then. Um, and it became a feature on the show. I wished I had a recording of it because they used to say, all right, it's Devin's tough guy request of the week. <laughs> and I would always call in just some really ignorant shit. And, but it meant a lot to me because I'm like a kid, you know? And I was just so excited to like share my love of keeping it real with all of New England. Um, and I think that hardcore is, you know, it's not a spectator sport. It's so participatory and anyone can get involved, you know, and sometimes all it is is like picking up a phone and, you know, calling a radio or in the case of Mark for Life, people send me voice messages, which I kind of like record with my phone and I actually put their, their making their request to quote unquote on the air and then I play the request. And, and it's that same thing um, where they're kind of turning on, you know, not the whole scene, but whoever's listening to Mark for Life, including me, to all these incredible bands that we would never hear otherwise. And one of the goals of Mark for Life was to really shine a light on international bands because there's so many sick bands all over the world that just aren't getting the attention that I think they deserve. Um, and so I'm like the, the all request episode is the one that just dropped on Tuesday. And there's 10 bands um, that I play on there, 10 requests. And the requests came in from like Australia, Germany, we've got people from Japan, Texas, Arizona. I mean, you really get this feeling of being so connected on an international level with this shared love and respect for, you know, what we do. And then the requests were like fucking crazy. Like the, the first one I play on the episodes, this band that just dropped a demo like two weeks ago from Germany called Force of, Den wait, what is it? Force of Denial? I've been calling them FOD. Yeah, Force of Denial. So good. I'm not even the hugest fan of kind of metallic 90s hardcore, but they're, you know, I like pretty much all genres of hardcore. 
it, if it hits right. And this Force of Denial four song demo is like a beautiful thing. Like it's kind of flawless. So I was just so happy that, you know, this, this kid in Germany called in this request and now this demo that I can't stop listening to. Um, and I got a lot of messages about that too. So a lot of other people are feeling it too. Um, but like you said, yeah, I'm really not in any particular subgenre of hardcore. I think um, I listen to all different subgenres. There are some I like more than others, um, but I really do try to showcase everything. And I'll, in the beginning, I, I was playing, you know, mostly bands that just I'm like, like busting a gut to tell someone about, like, I must, I must share this. It's so good. I have to make a radio show. I have to make people listen to this because I love it, you know? And now people are, are writing to me like, hey, my band, we're, we've never played a show. We just put out a demo. You, you check it out. And I hear it. And I'm like, yo, this shit is amazing. Okay, yeah, I'm playing it, you know? Um, and like you said, I'm just trying to give a platform, you know, to bigger bands, to, you know, bands on Triple B or whatever, you know, if, if I think that they're great. But also bands that formed, you know, a month ago and just ripped a, a sweet demo. Um, because I think that something that's so cool about hardcore is that really all these bands in real life are on equal footing and we will, you know, it, it's great to just give them exposure. What I find to be hardest in this modern era of hardcore is not only is this shift over to Friday as like the release day, but I find that there's so many fucking waves hitting the beach at any given time. And mm -hmm. especially in an international capacity, there's just so many bands out there at this stage it's not like when you and I were grasping for just whatever was new. And even then there was 10 to 15 years of music that you could draw on. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about almost 40 years of hardcore that's already that's established. And then yeah. we're, and with the acceleration of technology and the ability to release, I feel that the international community still kind of left out on the American stage, which is a large market. And I hate to mm -hmm. use the term market, but like a, a giant portion of bands that we brought through, this is hardcore European. I'm going to be honest. There's times where we've underwhelmed them. Like mm -hmm. how we, how weed from Russia was an example. Like that mm -hmm. was Moscow's best band and, and America didn't show up. And, yeah. I, and I, as we'll get into when we do your podcast, you know, touring internationally, it's the opposite. Like the praise and respect for a band mm -hmm. traveling to another country is paramount when you leave America. And I feel like something that Mark for Life could do is impress upon younger people the need to show that 15 to 25 minutes to a band that's here X amount of thousand miles. But also, you're also doing it locally in the regard of there's a million bands with a million band camps and you know, I, I, I complain about the algorithm and if you've got 20 mm -hmm. friends that'll share your thing, you're going to have 4,000 people listen. But if you've got five friends, no one's going to know you're around. Mm -hmm. And it's such, it literally is like a, another wave crashing on the beach. And so you capturing the bands that you're excited about and giving them a platform is really important because you hear the same names consistently. Like, I could close my eyes and say, oh, it was 2000. So, oh, you really had to hear carry on. Your American Nightmare is the best. Like, you know, like, you know, they're the, every, every stage of hardcore, there's the best four or five bands. And then there's right. a regional taste. And there's so many more amazing bands that just get lost to it. So what you've done with Marvel Life has given so many people exciting new things to listen to. And you know this better than I. I mean, I'm talking to so many people. 
that come through your show, there are people that we will never see at shows again because their lives got busy. But mm -hmm. they love to support Artcore. Now you're giving right. them, you're giving them a taste. Just like the show we're doing right now is giving people who I haven't gone to show. I got kids, but I love hearing about Artcore. Like you're injecting some positivity and showing older folks and people that can't come to shows that this whole thing's still going on. And it's super impressive. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think like, especially being older and being, I mean, I'm like consistently amped on what's going on in hardcore. And I also think that probably since about 2016, I feel like is when pe things were kind of changing. Maybe you can weigh in on this too, but I felt like a huge shift happening and a lot of new kids were coming in. The kind of vibe was changing at shows. And then there was just an explosion of amazing bands. Um, and I just think that we're living through this, like, I mean, an interrupted era of hardcore, but previously to 2020 and, you know, going forward, we're in this kind of like new golden era of really, really sick hardcore that's worth being excited about, you know, no matter if you're, you know, older or, or maybe you're just getting in, you know, what a great time to get in because there's a lot going on to be psyched about. But, um, I think being older, um, around people who aren't as excited or are kind of jaded, I get really frustrated because they'll say, uh, I'll say, oh, you got to hear this new band. Oh my God. Like, I know you're going to love these riffs. Check this out. And they're like, ah, oh, that just sounds like this old band. And I'm like, oh, come on. So part of making Mark for Life was to kind of show all these, you know, old heads like, no, look, look how sick this is. But what I was surprised was that I was getting a ton of really young people saying, hey, you're getting me into so much stuff or your excitement for what you're playing makes me so excited. Like, I can't wait to go to a show, which is pretty much the best feeling ever <laughs> because I just want everyone to like be psyched on hardcore. And I think that oftentimes people are so critical of what's going on, critical of bands, critical of shows, critical of people, critical of everything. They just shit all over it. And I get that. I mean, there's things that I don't like too, of course, but sometimes I'm like, then what are you doing here? What do you like? It seems like you like nothing where I feel like there's just so much to celebrate. You know what I mean? Now, when I think of everything you just said, it'd be impossible to not note that at the end of this episode, Carl Procaro, who's our main guest on the show tonight, discusses a band that he's in with you. And for those listening at a certain time when we were booking and setting up this how we benefit with the alone the crowd reunion you were like handpicked by jules and them to do this song with alone the crowd and <laughs> which in itself is just fucking unreal <laughs> and like yeah like when jules like what do you think about this i'm like in my head i'm like she is gonna shit herself <laughs> like, this is gonna be the, <laughs> like you're gonna be like this is the craziest thing ever <laughs> Yeah. And then when, and then when you when you were talking about it, I'm like, how fucking sick is this that you're doing this song? And instead of it just being a moment, like that one show, that one time you got to get up there, you know, uh, fuck, was that 2019 or was it 2018? I know 2020 it's... fucked up my ability to even know what years things are. I know. I think it was 2019. All right. So in, in that case, so rolling off of the inertia and excitement of being on stage with true legends, you guys rolled into trying to do a band together. And <laughs> yeah. in fact, it was kind of sad. We were working on a, a show where you guys were going to play at Creep Records, supporting a show we had booked. And with COVID, none of it happened. But before I let you go, I got to have your perspective on not only getting up and doing that set, but like how you ended up being 
the young, exciting, super exuberant, and just positive person in a band with essentially guys who not only wrote the book on hardcore, but need that kind of sprucing up and excitement. Like, no, no, this is going to be cool. You know, that kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I was asked to sing uh, a Killing Time cover with Alone in the Crowd, I did basically shit myself. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wait, what now? And I was like, this is, this is not real. Are you fucking kidding me? Because like, you know, I grew up, I told you, like, I grew up listening to New York hardcore, 80s New York hardcore. I was obsessed. I still am. So I was like, this is too much. Like, I can't. And um, when I did the song, I like, I had a panic attack. People were making fun of me. They said, I saw you freaking out. I said, I was freaking out. And, you know, I've, I've played hundreds of shows in my life and I always get nervous, of course, but like, it's not a big deal. But this one, I was like, I had to do like breathing exercises before I got on stage because I was like, this isn't my band, you know, like I've never sung with another band. I was like, I can't fuck this up. And this isn't just any band. This is alone in a crowd. <laughs> like, this is insane. Um, and, but then as soon as we got up, it was, it was so fucking fun. It just felt natural you know like it felt like a party I was so happy and like after you know like Carl and Lars were like hugging me we were all high-fiving <laughs> and uh it was just such like a, a beautiful moment and then Carl was like hey we should play music sometime and I was like ha, yeah okay Carl <laughs> from Killing Time and Breakdown we will definitely play music sometime I was like he's just high on the moment um and then he he kind of kept hitting me up like, hey, let's really do this thing. Hey, I'm writing some shit. Hey, I'm writing riffs. Hey, I'm writing songs. Hey, can you come to New York? And I was like, uh, yeah, let's let's fucking do this thing. Um, and that was very very surreal for me um, and hard to hard to keep it cool. But as I got to know the guys more, it's just been really really fun. You know, I go I would go up to New York and we wrote five songs. We we're about to record a demo. Um, and about to play our first shows, which was really exciting. And yeah, they actually just had their first, their first practice back yesterday. And I'm moving to New York at the end of next month. So, which is very sad because I, I'm very, very sad to leave Philly, but it's cool at least for the band because we'll get to practice a lot more easily. You kind of just broke my heart. I didn't realize you guys were leaving. <laughs> but yeah, actually, I think, I think I, someone, I think someone told me that they were, something going on and that you guys are going to have like a going away thing. And I was like, I, I didn't realize you guys, you were leaving too. We had to, we had to discuss Carlos, you taking, taking her away. So <laughs> what's funny is, is um we recorded, we recorded yesterday and we had to shorten up what we were going to do with Carl so he could make mm -hmm. that band practice. And for me in, in doing this podcast, I, I not only want to talk to people who have had, impacts in hardcore or people are excited to hear their stories but it's important to me that people hear the voice and the the thought process behind great things that are happening and i don't want to wait 10 years and be like oh remember when she did that mark for life that was so cool <laughs> i wanted to capture i want to capture in the moment as you're producing these um episodes and you're feeling all this excitement i wanted to capture it in the in it's right now and with the relationship with you and Carl and this band, it was a yeah. perfect thing to kind of add you to it. And with Mark for Life 7 being out now, I wanted to give you the opportunity to promote on the podcast. So this is the thing that Richie Crutch has put me on and we said it a million times ago. Highs, high tide will raise all ships. And if people listening to this podcast haven't checked out Mark for Life, 
I pray that you go and you check it out. We're going to have links so she, uh, you can check it out. And we're going to do our best to make sure that even though you'll be living in New York, well, we still get a Dread LLC show when you guys are ready to come back. So give Absolutely. me any closing thoughts. Give me the, uh, the, the super sale, like, you know, like the knife guy at two in the morning. Give me the mark for life knife guy. Give us the sale, the dot com. Give us everything. And I promise you, uh, we'll either do this in person before you leave for New York or shortly after we're going to get you on this podcast because your story goes so far in depth. And I remember meeting you in the early 2000s and just being overwhelmed by just not only how articulate you were, but you were on the stage of hardcore in a, a capacity with the politics 20 years before people were talking about it. And it really just blew my mind talking to you first. I'm like, all right, this is like a walking uh, encyclopedia of stuff I have no idea about. <laughs> and it was That's impressive. <laughs> and, over, and over the years, you and I have grown to become really good friends and someone that when you're at a show, you have such a beaming smile and you'll come over and be like, dude, that was fucking great. And I, I, I saw on stage your little bit of worry, but how could you not? You're, you're singing at the church with this great show for a great person. Yeah. And then yeah. you're pl- it, 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 like, it's impossible not to get caught in a moment. So thank you for coming on and uh, yeah, tell people, thank you for having people me. about Mark for Life 7, tell people about how to get in touch and we'll get you back home. Okay, cool. So Marked for Life is a hardcore radio show podcast that you can get on all streaming platforms. I'm only playing shit from 2018 or after. Six shit only, only 10 fresh songs, 10 fresh bands every episode plus your requests. Um, you can call in a request whenever you want. I will play it eventually <laughs> or put it on an all request episode. Um, I am representing hardcore from across the genre and around the world and always with a positive outlook. You can check it out at markedforlife at buzzsprout.com um, or follow Marked for Life HC on Instagram. I don't do Twitter because I don't have the patience for it. Um, but I am on Instagram and you can also hit me up at markedforlifehc at gmail.com. If you want to let me know about your band, if you're a label and you have a bunch of bands you want me to check out at once, I listen to literally everything. Um, it's hard for me to play it all because, you know, 10, 10 bands goes by really fast, but I love hearing everything. That's That's all. Thank you so much for having me. That was absolutely incredible. Can't wait to have you back on and thank you for continuing to keep the spirit of hardcore alive in a fresh, but also old school way and just rethinking how people can get in touch with new bands. It's absolutely fantastic. It was mind blown. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And I'm like, wait, fucking Davin? That's even cooler. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh yeah, of course something like Davin would do this. Your, your archival knowledge of bands is fucking overwhelming at times. So <laughs> it's impressive and it needs its own podcast for three hours and we're going to do just that. Thank you for being Thanks on. Down. Everyone check out Mark for Life. We're going to have in the show notes, Mark for Life, hardcore updates for you so get on the get on it go back if you haven't listened and if you're a follower thank you also something i say is when you see someone post something give it a reshare because only getting out in her feeds one thing but like when a new episode comes out you guys i see it like 25 times and it just makes me happy to see people getting the support and i hope you guys do that davin thank you so much thank you well that was an awesome little intro from davin And I really hope that you check out Mark for Life. Going into our episode guest, Carl Picaro. Not only am I a fan of Breakdown and Killing Time, and many years ago had Kings of Troy and Code Orange back when they were Code Orange kids playing a matinee together. 
But over the years, not only through booking the shows, but getting to know him better, I really just wanted to have a story from him where we can get to the roots of where he came from, what his early influences are. And as you'll hear, he eventually had to go to a band practice. So this one was going to be shorter, but the way that it ends actually bookends us perfectly. So when we roll in the part two, we have so much to talk about. What you're going to listen to is essentially the story of Breakdown. Short-lived first run before they would reunite. The things behind it, the way they all got together. And Carl does such a great job of telling the story and giving colorful detail. And this is honestly just so exciting to put out. And I loved hearing it. And even though it's a shorter overall interview, I think it ends perfectly on a note that we can pick up very well next time. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much. We are talking to Carl Papara. You may have heard of him from such bands as Breakdown, Healing Time, Alone in the Crowd. Over the years, I've learned that Carl is not only one of the most accomplished New York hardcore guitarists possibly of all time, but he's also an OG metalhead. He has <laughs> continued on in the modern times with projects more like Kings Destroy. And we're going to knock this one out. There's going to be a shorter one. We're going to bring him back for a part two, just like our boy Wally and my boy Isaac. So, Carl, thank you for coming on the show. Yep. What's up, everyone? Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it, man. Now, We've had a lot of New York Harker guys in here in the last month or two. And am, am I mistaken that you grew up not in Queens, but like Yonkers or something like that? Like you're Yonkers, like you're not a Queens guy? Yonkers, New York. No, not a Queens guy. Yonkers, New York. Myself, Rich McLaughlin came from Yonkers. Don Angelilli from Breakdown came from Yonkers. Now, there was a bunch of us, you know, and it was like, uh, you know, there was a bunch of, uh, bunch of metalhead that followed us too like you know like uh immolation mortician you know it was all at one point that was just a whole crew of people just hanging out in the parking lot you know and we kind of went we went our different ways musically slightly you know some of us went into hardcore some of us went into death metal black metal yeah yonkers man it was it was uh Everyone thinks everyone that I talk to now thinks like they, they ask about Yonkers and they think it was like this fertile scene. But literally it was fucking nothing, man. It was just like a couple of outcasts and misfits hanging out, you know, amongst, you know, the Guidos and their Camaros. And uh, yeah, and we made our own thing. Now, when you were growing up before you even got into high school, was the music that you listened to at home anything that would get you to the point where you're um, listening to metal and meeting all these guys? Or what was it like at home musically? What was the first kind of things that kind of turned you on to get you into checking out metal? I would have to, it would be it would be Kiss because I, I grew up in a household where it was a lot of uh, strangely enough for like a New York suburb there was a lot of it was a lot of country music being played, you know. My dad would be listening to his like Linda Ronstadt, and Kenny Rogers, 
And then some of the cooler ones like George Jones, Johnny Cash. But like that first, that first like time I I, I had, I, I don't even I know if you know, you probably know what this is, but I don't know if a lot of people remember like the Columbia House Record and Tape Club where you can yeah. get like, you know, you can get 14 records for a dollar or something like that. Well, you know, I got a whole ton of Kiss records, you know, and uh me and all the boys at public school, grade school, we were all we were all Kiss fans, and you know we were like the sort of like we were sort of like the alive two slash you know you know uh, you know double platinum era of Kiss, kind of after their heyday, and then like when they put out you know their disco record, you know. We were of the age, we were old enough where we were like the group of people that were like, fuck, man, that sucks. And we became, we, we stopped being kids bands, whereas like that's like, for them, that's when a whole generation of little tiny kids became kids fans. So that that's where it started, man. I mean, that was the first like, kind of like, you know, guitar-based kind of like somewhat, you know, heavy and upbeat rock and roll music that I listened to. And, you know, from there, you know, we got into all kinds of other stuff, you know, the classics, ACDC and the Who, Zeppelin, things like that. It, it wasn't, hardcore didn't come, hardcore didn't come till, till much later. I, you know, I, I don't think I, I, I probably really was at a, a, a hardcore show until I was like, probably 17 years old or something like that you know so it was kind of hard to find that hardcore even existed at that point you know you had to do you had to do some research now thinking about back to kiss that's a crazy turn that they took because they had like love gun and they had the destroyer records and they were like on the top and then they shifted with i think that what was that record called like dynamic or dynasty dynasty yeah, I, I got um, I had a my mom's boyfriend, one of them, who was in the house for quite a bit. He got me full and in the kiss way before I would ever find hardcore as well. And when I think about Kiss, because they were New York guys, were you guys even cognizant at the time of the Ramones, or were they still kind of still too small for you guys to kind of check out? I didn't know about them until much later. Okay, although I probably saw the Ramones play before I saw a proper hardcore show. I definitely saw the Ramones before I saw Warzone, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> now, what kind of what kind of shows were you going to like the big room concerts or were totally. you going totally. uh, were you linked up with these uh like the Angelilli brothers and Bill then or when did you guys start all going to concerts? That was that was the, that was the crew. You just you just you just kind of you just nailed it. It's, you know, me me and uh me and Bill Wilson, uh, we uh, we go back so far; it's like stupid. I mean, we were like um, we went to nursery school together. If you can believe that, you know. Holy so, shit. and both of us are only both of us are 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 only children, you know. So, like, we didn't have like we didn't have like the big brothers, big sisters, like you know, feeding us music. So, like, we kind of like both went out and like found our own shit and then informed each other. But yeah, I mean, 
yeah, like in the early days, man, I think like probably the first show we saw together was Iron Maiden, I would say, you know, probably Peace of Mind Tour, you know, Van Halen, 1984 Tour. Um, uh, what else? I mean, that was like, uh, you know, Dio, first Dio Tour. Those were like the first like rooms, first shows that we saw. And those were those were like you said, big room concerts. Those were at like Madison Square Garden or like uh the Brendan Byrne Arena out at the Meadowlands in Jersey. Um maybe the Nassau Coliseum. So that that like that's where we started, you know, that's where we started, and we didn't really those were great shows, man. I love all those bands still, but like we didn't really kind of stay there for too long you know it's like you know music was changing and pretty soon we were into like you know thrashing hardcore like a year a year a year after that so it's like we started with these big big arena like metal shows and next thing you know we're you know at, at lemoore's and at cb's and wherever else we could find a gig in the tri-state area was it who was the who was the person who kind of like brought the fire to everybody? Who was the person who was like, "Yo, check this out"? Was it because of Metallica? What was the what was the impetus to kind of? Funny that you say that. I feel like you know. I mean, just you know, Metallica's become you know what they've become the biggest rock band on the planet, or one of them. And it's like, but yeah, back in the when when their first record came out, that shit was lit. And like you know, when I when I got that. When I got that, I was, I was fucking so fucking stoked. And I definitely got that before I heard, like, before I heard, like, uh, AF or uh, or Negative Approach or even Minor Threat. It all seemed to happen around the same time, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we didn't have, like, we, we didn't have one, one, like, leader of the crew who was getting all the music. We were all just getting different shit and, like, showing each other. But there was, of course, like there always is, like there was like there was the like the, the, the local record store where we all hung around. We all hung around, you know, and it was like there was a guy there. This guy at that place, it was called Mad Platters. And there was a guy there called Tony Pradlick. And like he like turned us on to so much shit early, you know, like every he was always like, you know, telling us what was happening, what was new and like. He also like stocked like it seems funny at the time, you know, like we, you know, we used to get those like we used to get Kerrang magazine, which, Hell you yeah. know, at the time was like I was like a real like metal magazine. It was like we got into like, you know, you'd read all about like, you know, like the, all like the new wave of British heavy metal bands and stuff in there. But then he started like also selling like guillotine magazine. And like, I don't know if you know what guillotine is, but guillotine is a fanzine it's like a black it was like a black and white fanzine but it wasn't like a it wasn't like a xerox fanzine it was like you know like uh it was like an actual you know small magazine but it was black and white had a glossy cover but black and white just like regular print inside and it was uh you know i didn't know at the time but later you know i realized it was done by this this uh this woman wendy yeah wendy and, uh, like every like she did reviews of every CB show. So that's like, that's, that was for my, for my like development, it was, that was like really important because it's just like, when I realized there was all this shit happening, 
and there was all these all these different bands playing and all these and all these uh all these shows and there was like not you know yonkers is not that far away from cbs you know but before that shit it was really hard to even know what it was really hard to even know what was going on you know because there was certainly nothing happening in yonkers you know so uh that was like that was instrumental that like all the stuff that tony played us in that record store and those magazines that he, that he sold there that was like that was the that was a huge beginning you know pretty soon after we pretty soon after we like saw that you know we were getting on the bus in the subway and like going down to cbs on sunday afternoon now before we get into the cbs thing we had a couple people from the queens guys who also were talking about their local record store did you meet anybody because of man platters like did you run anybody who would eventually be like a hardcore person it was mainly just your crew that were in there at mad platters at that time yeah, man, I met so many fucking people, you know, there, like, it's like, you were either going to meet, like, a hardcore kid because you scoped some some dude out that had, like, a crew cut and was wearing, like, camouflage cut-off shorts or something like that. That wasn't, like, some, that wasn't some Abercrombie and Fitch, like, dad shit back there. That was, like, that's, that was how you identified a hardcore kid, you know, someone that had t- tattoos someone that had a skateboard or someone that was in that record store. So like, there was like so many, there was so many dudes, most notably probably like, you know, Jim Gibson, who we lost this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was, you know, he's the one that did the, where the wild things are compilation, uh, with Bill Wilson. Uh, he's, uh, the dude that put the breakdown, uh, demo out on, on seven inch vinyl back in the day, you know, so he would have been one of the guys that we met there. There's so many other dudes, you know, Joey, I, who's also like, you know, works at blackout records, you know, fucking, you know, raw, like Ross, who's you know, the singer of immolation. I think, that's one of, I think that's like so parallel to everything that we came up with in so many ways. Like we were the headbangers who didn't live downtown. Yeah. And so we went to the big concerts and then it, um, instead of it being records at the time, it was tapes. And then the tapes would go to be CDs and it was both Columbia house and BMG. And then it was a chance of going down and the record stores and you started seeing zines. That was my window between zines and seeing like, like you're talking about like cool people wearing cool shit. Like, you know, like I'm a, I was mad young. I was like 12 years old with all people in high school, a couple of years older than me, but we were like the headbangers in the neighborhood. So we would go down there and everything you just described is what we were like. You knew who was a cool person. And I remember seeing like, whether it was like the atom bomb mushroom cloud of Cro-Mags or like the hand with the straight edge of you today. And, yeah. and, and it was that kind of stuff on top of like reading old Thrasher magazines that were used that our friends had that really drove me to hardcore. So I love that that was kind of like your guys in, in Yonkers window to hardcore, you know? Yep. So, and, and you, and you know, maximum rock and roll was like a thing too, but that was like a, that was like a, that was like a lifeline too. I mean, not so much for like the articles, although, you know, there were great articles, but I mean, the, the main thing like from that was just like going into the back of it and like, you know, seeing like the cassettes you could buy like from different bands like it was so fucking cool man i mean 
pen pals too that's like a fucking crazy idea but like i definitely had some pen like it seems just kind of silly nowadays but like in the age of like that we're in but like yeah i mean you meet people and you start writing letters back and forth and you meet bands and you, and you order their cassettes and like it was cool it was coming home to my parents house and having like the chromags demo in, in, in the mailbox was fucking great you know like having like the uh uh you know the ludicrous demo you know hell yeah uh, you know <laughs> having like no, that's like one of that's one of the sickest bands that we don't really that's the first time we had someone mentioned on the show uh, but really? yeah but i mean to me i mean we had a, a lot of headbanger friends so Ludacris was on my map way before some of the hardcore bands we'd find out about. So I'm in the same boat. I came right from the metal stuff. So let me ask you as a, as a metal Christ, guy. Let me just say one thing about Ludacris was the perfect, like the perfect intersection of like, of metal, hardcore, and just plain like weird guy shit. Like it was yeah. like, it was right in that sweet spot. <laughs> so what's it like as a group of metalheads? Were you, were you guys, would you guys look in the part of metalheads when you went down to your first CB show or were you guys still kind of like incognito metal? Like, what did you guys look like? And like, how'd you feel when you first stepped into your first show down there, like in like a hardcore show? Well, I don't remember the first show I went to. Um, I have been Warzone and Youth of Today or something like that. It might've been Agnostic Front carnivore and whiplash it was like you know i was just like when i started going i started going every time every week but the first i remember the first time i went down there you know like it's embarrassing to say now but i was definitely like and i don't know people used to laugh about dudes like that like like that but i was definitely like an instant skinhead that's (laughs) awesome (laughs) i love that (laughs) i just i just went from like First of all, I was a shitty metalhead. I never looked like I had a fucking colic in my hair. <laughs> like I was never like I never I never looked a part of like a fucking great metalhead. But you know, I, I you know I, at one point, you know, I you know I had like my denim jacket with Twisted Sister written on the back, and then I don't know, man. Then. You know, probably a few months later, it was like it had COC on the back and my fucking head was shaved and I had a skateboard and like, like everything seemed to just kick off at once, you know. But you know what? It wasn't contrived. It was just like I just found something that I loved. And it was like it meant I loved metal and I still do, but it just meant so much more to me, you know, like, like it just the shit people were talking about and the lyrics and the accessibility of the scene and the bands and like you know to just fucking aggro kind of the energy and the fucking anger that you know you got it some thrash metal but that was still that was still sort of developing like in hardcore that was like that was just like on the cover of the book you know no i mean i i I relate so heavily like (laughs) if you see pictures of me for like my first hardcore shows and then one day, literally, he's like, boom, shave your head. Boom, done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I never, I always hear, uh, or I actually have read more zines where you talk about, you know, you guys all got together and start jamming. But when when did you actually start thinking about playing music? Were you doing that 
before you started becoming like a like an like an avid metal fan or did the music inspire you to start playing guitar no the music start the music is what inspired me i was i was uh i was a failed accordion player that shit's um, hard, man. They got like sixteen hundred buttons, hard, and you dude. and you gotta like move. I don't understand the move. I don't understand what the movement does besides like act like a bellow. But like movement is makes the sound, man. So if you don't keep a constant pressure on that box, it 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 just dies, you know. And like you said, you've got one hundred twenty buttons with your left hand, and then you got a fucking keyboard with your right hand. And you know what? I probably could have mastered it, but I, I didn't want to. I didn't fucking want the fucking thing. It was like that was my dad's idea. I was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> I like it's like I love that. So he, what did he bring it home to you? Like, hey, kid, here's your accordion. Let's rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, like Weird Al Yankovic wasn't even around yet, so it's like I like <laughs> I didn't. I never even saw one of those fucking things. I didn't even know what it was. You know. Yo, New York hardcore would have been so different if Carl Picaro was like the accordion in bands. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so a lot of times when people start bands, it's like, well, this guy plays this. I'm going to try to play this. Was that how it worked? Like you guys are jamming. And I know the Angeli brothers were uh, playing, but they were probably, were they playing before you? Is that what got you to start? Like, how did you end up just in the guitar? Uh, because I just, you know, I was, I, I was just fucking so into like fucking, like I was so into like fucking Pete Townsend and fucking Jimmy Page and fucking Angus Young, and I just like, I eventually after just like fucking around with the accordion, like you know, you know, they would real. This sounds fucking crazy, but like they would literally like be like, my, you know, my my my, my parents are kind of old school, so they would literally be like. It's practice time. It's fucking and like, like, and I was sitting in the fucking. I was sitting in the room in the house that we called my mom's sewing room, and I with the fucking accordion, and I'm supposed to be playing these fucking stupid songs, and I was just bored off my mind. You know, they would be watching. They would be watching like Mash down the downstairs. So then, like, I would be. They probably hear me on the fucking accordion, like playing the match theme, like, like, like. But I fucking eventually, I, I just couldn't take it, and I was like, Dad, this is like not gonna fucking happen. Like, we got a deal. I don't. I didn't say it that way, but I was like, I really want to play the guitar. So we, he took me back to where he had gotten the guitar, which was like, I don't know, like some like basement of some like, uh, some like Italian guy's house in the Bronx, and. uh they had like an SG, they had like a Japanese SG copy for sale, like, you know, so I was like, we traded the guitar in and I got the SG copy and that's where it kicked off, you know, and like, I don't know, I wasn't like one of those, I mean, speaking for all of us, probably, I mean, all of us in the little scene that were me and Don, you know, and, uh, and Rich, who we didn't meet until a little later, but I'll tell you about that later, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I I wasn't like adept at like I I didn't pick up the guitar and, and then be like, all right, like I'm gonna I'm, I know I'll, I didn't like sit down in my room and like immediately like be able to play like all of Randy Rhodes' fucking solos. Like that's probably what I would have wanted to do, you know. But like so like instead I just started like writing like riffs and stuff. I used to take two tape recorders and like you know just like. Like play, I used to play the drums on a box, recorded on the tape recorder, and then like, 
then play one tape recorder with the, me playing drums on the box and then play guitar along with it and record it on another tape recorder. And like, I wrote my, my first song was called Death Unforeseen. And like, damn, that's hard, <laughs> hard though. <laughs> that's where it started. You know, it's like, I mean, I eventually kind of learned how to pick out like, you know, songs from people and stuff. But in, in the early days, it was just like, oh, this, I love the fucking noise this thing fucking makes. And like, I, I you know, I'm good at playing like fucking bar chords and like I could play like, you know, I could play like heavy, heavy Sabbath riffs and stuff. And like, yeah. And, uh, but uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's where it started off. So it wasn't like the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you'll play this and you'll play that. Like me and Don were definitely metalheads turned, turned skinheads. I look like a fucking, when I first shaved my head, I was like so skinny and like weird looking like it. And like Don had this fucking giant head and like, you know, like we, but we were both, we were both like, we were both guitar players. And that's kind of where it kicked off. That's what kind of, so, and then we happened to find Rich who was already a bass player. It wasn't like Rich was deciding like, you know, and uh, we found him like, at the public pool. It's like, who's the fucking guy with the fucking mohawk at the public pool? That was, <laughs> that was the guy we're going to know, you know, like, and, you know, fucking a couple of weeks later, we're, we're in a, we're in a band together. We had a guy named, we had a guy named Lou Alfidi. I don't know if you know Lou, you, you might've met him at some point. Like he's like, at the time, like, he was more of like the guy who was like, all right, I'll just play drums. I want to be in a band. Like, um, you know, he was more like kind of a, kind of a gothy punk fucking guy. And like, yeah, he wasn't really, he really wasn't that skilled at the, at the drums. At the time. <laughs> but like, you know, like he was, he was what we had. And it's funny. He's just become like, you know, we're all at the age we're at, you know, and lose the uh, Lou didn't last long in breakdown, but he just became a fucking, a fucking lifelong fucking hardcore fan, man. He's like, he's got like eight kids now. And like, he's still like fucking upfront at fucking shows and, you know, not just our shows, like all New York hardcore shows, like singing along and stuff. So yeah, that was like, that was the, that was like the that that was the group, you know, and it was the four, it was the four of us, you know, and like, you know, I mean, Rich, you know, Rich, Rich, Rich tried to be the singer for we because we didn't have a singer, so we Rich Rich uh, Rich was gonna be the singer for a little bit, you know, and like we, we fucked around like that, you know. I think we Breakdown had that song Life of Bullshit, which it's one of the few songs that i wrote the lyrics to um so we would do it we do we do that one and rich would sing it and uh and then i don't know then we found uh and we then, then we found uh we found jeff you know the same see the same see the same people like tony pradlick like the, the guy who was feeding us all these records also you know that was a hub of activity like everyone coming in and out so he knew this was this guy jeff in new rochelle and uh you know nourish adjacent enough to yonkers half an hour away he knew he was 
he was looking to be in a band so he put up he put the he put us together and that's where like that's where it started to become more real you know now i know at some point you guys started linking up with the like the actually established like new york hardcore people um some of the token entry guys you guys met early and you were going down to other places to check out records so is that how you guys ended up uh, sh- shifting out Lou for Drago is like you just ran into him. How did you guys end up starting to like? Oh, say, it, was oh. same, it was the same fucking deal, man. It was like it was like a record store, but it wasn't like it. Um, it was like this place called Record Stop in Hartsdale that this woman Sue ran, and of course Sue had started at Mad Platters where where we all hung out, and then she opened her own record store, and Hartsdale was sort of closer to White Plains. And uh, I don't know what, you know, I think, uh, I think we might've, I think we might've put up a sign in there or something like that. You know, looking for someone. Yeah. And I know, I know when Jeff came in, like credit to him and no offense to Luke cause I love him, but credit to, he was probably like, dude, you know, like we can't fucking be playing with this guy because, <laughs> you know, Let's just say, like, not only was there drumming stuff happening, but there was other shit going on with Lou, where it was like it wasn't really working. But, I mean, we might have, we might have put up a sign, and I think uh, you know Sue saw Drago looking at the sign and said, you know, call these guys or whatever, you know. So like, um, you know, Drago Drago's side of the story is funny on this too, but like, we. Uh, we went to a, we went to like audition him, you know, it was all official and everything like that. And he was like, we were a little older, you know, we were probably a year older than him. He was probably like 16. And like he was like a he, he was like a misfits fan. Like he showed up, we showed up at his parents' house and we went to their back garage and you know, Drago had his little devil lock and stuff. <laughs> and like we I don't know, I don't think we even played any songs. I think we were just like, dude, play the drums, yeah, play play the drums, kid. <laughs> like and when he started playing, we were like, "Fuck, this is the guy," and uh, he was the fucking guy. And playing together for like thirty fucking five years or something like that now. It's crazy. Something, something <laughs> that I, something I picked up on from even the earliest days of New York hardcore is that the Queens, the Yonkers, the the further away from the core city, Manhattan it seems like the bands were able to practice at home. Yes. So there was like this ability to have these kind of bands and these conglomerate of different dudes that would shift in and out of these bands. Cause unlike, in, you know, when these guys are in these fucking, what do you call it? Like apartments or tenements. Like you guys actually had garages to shit to rock out. Yeah. Were there, were there, and now in the, when we talk about the Queens hardcore scene, which is a big part of New York hardcore as well, there's like different people that shift in and out. So, Obviously, a lot of people you've mentioned, besides our buddy Luke so far, have been uh, not really. I've always been in the New York hardcore. Were there people that kind of back then that you think just got old and, you know, within two or three years were out where your whole core because of the bands you were in stayed in? Or was it basically because you're out in Yonkers, there wasn't really that many of you guys all together? There wasn't. There wasn't that many of us at all. You know, it was just what they're just not fucking. Yeah, so what you what you what you see is what you get, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were certain people that kind of just hung around and went to shows and stuff, and they were in and out in a couple of years. Uh, but they're just 
I mean, you're right, man. There just wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't that many, you know, there was there, there wasn't that many of us there. Not till years later, I guess. So obviously Drago passed the audition, right? And <laughs> you guys are getting ready to do this. Where um and Rich didn't really work out on vocals, so you, you pulled Perlin into the I mix. wouldn't say he didn't work out, it's just like we didn't feel like I don't know, we just like was it know, a we're kind of fucking around. <laughs> we're, 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 the- we're just kind of fucking around, you know. And then like when Jeff came to the room, we didn't know him. One, you know, two, he was fucking, you know, Je- Jeff, you know, Jeff said some humor wasn't like as uh, you know. He didn't wear it on his sleeve like he does nowadays. He was kind of a quiet guy. So he was like a big dude and he was just like fucking kind of serious. And like, you know, and like it, it, it just like, it made things a little, it just made things a little different. It made us like, and we didn't know the guy. So it was like, all right, we're here for a reason. We're like, a, we're a band, you know, that's why we're, that's why we're doing this. This is not some guys just dicking around in the garage, you know? So, um, yeah. What's great is Jeff might be the silliest person in your whole crew, I think. He totally is, dude. But <laughs> he's the weirdest person. He didn't seem that way back then at yeah. all, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, you're a teenager, too. You go through all your shit, too, and you're fucking pissed off. So it's like, yeah, he didn't have a chance yet to, like, have the perspective enough to be, like, the goofy guy, you know? <laughs> like... Now, one of the things that I picked up is that it was really hard because you guys weren't Queens guys. You weren't like, you weren't tied in, in that social bracket once the band had the demo rolling. And so it was like really hard for you guys to actually get established in a New York city. Like the, you know, obviously from I'm Philadelphia. So everything's New York is New York, but at the New York city micro level, it was hard for you guys to actually get that New York hardcore for a show, right? Is that that's that's the way I've always interpreted breakdowns for a show as being like Dude, that's, not uh, not the marquee situation, right? It's very well. Uh, that's a pretty good analysis because we couldn't get a show for shit. You know, we couldn't get a show for shit. We played our first show in a in a in a town called Mamaroneck, which is also Westchester, and it was like uh, it was us and uh, this band Zombie Squad. Zombie Squad were from Mamaroneck, and they were sort of like, you know, yeah, they were probably the same age as us, but they were slightly established as like a sort of like legitimate, like, you know, high school suburban punk band. They weren't a hardcore band. We were definitely a hardcore band. That was, and when we played, that first show was at a church, and we played maybe a song and a half, and like, I want to say the crowd erupted, but that's like the wrong terminology. But the kids there went fucking crazy. And like all these like, you know, kind of chaperones came out of nowhere, started grabbing kids and shut the power off. And that was like the end of our gig. Like it was like a song and a half. Um, so that, that was the first one. And then fuck, we would play like, we got to play like, place i don't know if you ever heard of a place called the right track in in freeport yeah it's it like outside i've seen shitty. i've seen flyers work it was kind of shitty but like you know stick of it all would play there the new york hoods would play there you know probably a lot of other bands i should be mentioning that i've forgotten but like um we got to play there 
Um, shit, we got to play. We played like we played some fucking shitty show in Middletown. I think with sheer terror. Um, who were like already? They were already like fucking well established. Sheer terror was already well established, but they were like sort of like a little bit left field of like your average New York hardcore, you know, they were doing like their own shit. Like, and then I, I guess kind of like where it started to be able to take hold a little bit was like, uh, we, when we met like the folks up in Albany, like, you know, like we're in Yonkers, man. And like, you know, CBGB's is half an hour away, you know, it's like fucking pyramid. But you, but you're like, away. but you're hanging out in Albany. Albany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but like, we, we played Albany and it was like, um, No Means No was headlining. Oh, shit. Like, I like wish I could go back and see that show because I grew to love them later. Yeah. But like, time was like, oh, they, they weren't New York hardcore. So, like, that wasn't my thing, you know, like, I was, I was very specific at the time. Um, but yeah, it was it was uh, the hoods, New York hoods, and uh, no means no, and breakdown. That was like the first kind of stop where it like felt like we we're like, all right, this is like legit. And then we got to like start playing like the Anthrax in Connecticut, which is like to this day, like I have such great memories from that place, and just like it was so like such a good scene there, man. It was just like fucking awesome. I never got to go to the original one in Stanford. And it's like, I just wasn't around then. But like, saw so many shows in that one in Norwalk. And, you know, Breakdown, we cut our teeth there like early. And, um, but I think we were like, you know, dude, I think we probably played, we probably played 12 shows outside of New York um, before we got a New York show. And it seemed like a fucking eternity, but it was probably six months. If even that, every show they gave us forty dollars afterwards. If we were lucky, or zero, it seemed like it was either zero or forty dollars. And then, um, and then like, I, and then like, fucking, I don't know if it was Ray Bees or Ray Capo called up Don, um, because Don was like, Don, Don was like the guy. Don, like, you know, he was like, you know, he didn't last a fucking whole hell of a long time in New York hardcore. But when we when we went down there, like. In the early days, like he was the dude that like went, he met everybody. He met everybody in front of CBs, you know? So like in my early days, everybody that I would have met would have been because Don met them first, you know. But um I think Ray it was Ray, I think Rabies and Ray Capo were doing shows together at the pyramid. And uh one of them called Don, I don't remember who, and he was like we were still just like this fucking Yonkers kids. Those guys were kind of like, you know, we were kind of in all of those, all those guys. He thought someone was prank calling him. He's like, oh, I hung up the phone on him. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, why would why would Ray Bees or Ray Capo be calling me? It's got to be someone prank calling me. But uh, they called back, and then the first show we did in the city was at, the, at was one of those pyramid shows that Ray and Ray were doing. And it was like side by side. It was like side by side altercation breakdown. I think, and maybe YDL. I've seen that flyer before. Maybe YDL too. I've seen that flyer before, and it's got this weird. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. like, a, like a guy hard. behind a door or some shit like that. <laughs> I had a, I had a friend who photocopied a shit ton of New York hardcore flyers. And there was like two for that show, or there was two shows. One was like side by side in altercation and had a bunch of skinheads. And then the other one is like this foot in a door. And I, I have it um, for a while. I was moving around a lot. So I glued old hardcore flyers to a piece of cardboard. Yeah. And that was like my wall and nice. I still have it. And I, <laughs> so I remember that flyer. Now I, I wonder now that you can look back on it. Do you think it was because breakdown had elements that wasn't just traditional New York hardcore, or do you think it had more to do with Yonkers and just being outside the box of like the social circles that kept you guys from playing uh, within the first 10 shows in New York city proper? I think it was because we were outside our kids, you know, like we were just not like, like when I say altercation and side by side and like YDL, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they were around much longer than us, but to us, it felt like those, it felt like we were getting on a bill with these like established bands, you know, like, like it really felt like we were like, like we were like some, like we were some kids, <laughs> like, and those guys were like, had been doing this, even though we were probably the same age and had been doing it around the same amount of time. It was just some suburban shit that we just felt like we were outside. You know, I mean, we definitely liked fucking metal and, you know, just vocals were definitely probably a touch, like, I don't know, more be a touch. I don't know what, there may be a touch harder or a touch more metal than some other bands. And we sort of liked, we sort of liked hip hop a lot too, but I, I don't know that that set us apart musically enough that people didn't want to book us. I think it was just that we were just not like, you know, we were not part of the scene, you know, we we're not like, you know, we, we were at shows on the weekends, but there, you know, there was a lot of people at the shows in like in 1986, 87, it was starting to get really big at the time, you know, probably much to, to the dismay of like guys like, like Anthony Camiali and dudes that had been around longer who, who really loved it, loved the scene when it was a much smaller thing. But yeah, I think it was just, I think we just didn't get shows because you know, we were at CB's every Sunday. You know, we were at the Pyramid on Saturday. You know, we were at the Anthrax on Friday night. You know, we were in the Muck Club in Middletown whenever there was a show there. We were at the Right Track Kid. Like, uh, but we weren't, we probably, we weren't really hanging out at like Tompkins Square Park at night. You know, you know, we weren't trying to, we weren't like underage trying to get into the Aztec Lounge with like, you know, Ray B's at the door. Like, you know, we were, we were, uh, you know, you were in the game, but you weren't doing the social after. I we, didn't li- we didn't live. We were not, we were not lower East side, you know, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't live it. You know? Now I love that you brought up hip hop because you and I had this conversation before and the breakdown elements, I think play very heavily into the things that we've talked about on the show where, as New York hardcore is growing, obviously the influences of metal is a big part of it. You got the Cro-Mag sound, the Leeway sound, which is very metallic. But because of, you know, BDP and the fact that New York hardcore was growing at the same rate as the New York hip hop, I do believe that there were some like rhythmic elements that came directly from 
you know, the exposure to hip hop. And I'm glad that you said that because I always felt like the thing that set Breakdown apart was that you guys didn't sound exactly like the standard format, you know, verse, chorus, blah, 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 Breakdown, that thing. Like you had different elements at the very earliest. And I would like you kind of talk like what we were, as you're, as you're in New York City and as a headbanger, becoming a hardcore person, how was your exposure to hip hop? Or what was your exposure, she said? I mean, it probably started with like, probably started where a lot of suburban white kids started, like with uh, with Run DMC, you know? Because that, like, that had very, like, you know, very defined beats, you know, very straightforward rhymes, and like it had that guitar in it, you know? So it's like, probably started off listening to like King of Rock, you know? <laughs> But that went into like um, that went into B- BDP, which you just mentioned was really, really important to us. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, my family comes from the Bronx, and Yonkers is you know kind of like a you know kind of Bronx Junior. So I mean, even though like we were coming from totally different places, we kind of felt an affinity uh, with BDP. So like, you know, and then from Philly, like we were into Schooly D just because his shit. Hell was so yeah. <laughs> you know? No, no one should, yo, yo, no one, sh- no one shot shouts out Schooly. Right. But, um, and you'll crack up at this. So, um, as I was growing in my hardcore knowledge and such, I eventually got to the point where Matt let me hang in his basement and he would pay me to like fill mailers out and help with cord, uh, cord magazine and call. Oh, yeah. And and so Schooly was always in Met's basement doing what those maniacs do. And I'll tell you one cool, stupid uh, Schooly story. So Met comes down and he's got the master CD for the CD he's putting out for my first band. And Schooly's there and he's like, yo, let me, yo, come on. We got, we got to hear this shit, man. Come on. I'm, I'm trying to hear this. So yeah. he put it in. It plays for like a half a minute. He's like, turn this shit off. It's too crazy, man. This is this is crazy. <laughs> so then he's like, no, 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 no. Yo, 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 let's run this back. Come on, one more time, man. Come on, come on, come on. It gives a minute in. All right, y'all are too crazy, man. This shit's crazy, man. It's- <laughs> <laughs> and like, so, you know, I'm like 20 years old, just sighted, like, in my mind, like, I'm working at a record label. I'm helping out this zine that I love. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hanging out with a completely maniac <laughs> school <ED. laughs> But when he wasn't shot the fuck out, like just all over the place, he put me onto a lot of early hip hop stuff and he laid out a foundation and he said the same thing. He's like, you know, we didn't know how, how we were influencing the white boys because we were into our own shit. He's like, but it was really cool to hear from his perspective, how hip hop grew out of things like a street culture. And so I love that you guys kind of understood that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also I I think you also, it wasn't an accident too. Like the, the, like we weren't like b-boys or like you know like our real like writers or anything but like you know that was part of like the culture of like being kids on the street and like we purposefully wanted to make the mosh parts sound like hip-hop beats like that was like something we we actually we didn't think about a lot of what we were doing but that's one thing we definitely thought about and, and tried to make happen and uh I guess we did it, it, did it to some degree. Thanks to Drago. Now, it's got to feel cool 
to go from and also let's let's just say that there's so many New York hardcore bands that may never have played 13 shows ever, but like yeah. people talk, still herald and talk about them. And, and breakdowns out there doing the fucking business. You're traveling to fucking Albany, which is further than most of some of these <laughs> New York hardcore bands that some of these young kids like reveal, like, you know, oh my God, worship. And yet I feel like it helped cut your teeth to that way by the time you played your first New York hardcore show, you had some chops under you, right? Would yeah, it, we had a new had to at least play the gig and get through it. <laughs> like it was, it was somewhat solid. I'm not going to say we had great chops, but yeah, we, we, we had, we had done it and we had done it on a bunch of different stages. And like, you know, when we, we already, we already had a chance to choke elsewhere before we got down to the pyramid and then to our next show after the pyramid, which was CBs, which was like simultaneously, like our best show and uh, and the show that made us like really be, like be like oh yeah well, we're like a real band and then the show that where we broke up you know it like happened at the same fucking gig it was like fucking crazy because that show was like we played that show at, at at the pyramid i was saying with altercation side by side um and then we got a gig at um and we got a gig at CB's with uh, Uniform Choice. By the way, that's one of my all-time favorite hardcore bands. We love and- that, dude. I can't believe you and I both love, we like, like love that band. Like, it doesn't. You wouldn't think, <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, that was important to me too. I really love that band, man. That's on. That's on my drive to jujitsu. I need to get psyched. <laughs> I sit. I can literally just listen to "Use Your Head." <laughs> it just gets so fucking piped and I'll send it to, I'll send it to hard Carl like yo motherfucker I'm listening to this or afterwards when we're talking I'll put it on as we're driving away like that song gets me so fucking excited still yeah yeah it's intense man the first I used to, the first breakdown show that we ever played at that at that church man I had the, I had the UC fucking use your head fucking t-shirt on you know that was my favorite shit at the time. I was so unity, unity to a degree too. But beautiful choices, like it's like that's like where where it became fully realized. Now, can you can you give me a rundown? Because I, I, it's always cool to hear different perspectives. Not just how it felt to play CBs, but like was the crowd at that time as homogenized and everybody looking the same as like when the break down the walls or like the start today pictures start coming out when everyone looks the same or was it still kind of muddled between like a variety of different people all kind of congressing at CB's for your first show? It was starting to get to be the same, but it wasn't fully there yet. You know, it did, it did be, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like the sea of like, Blonde hair. It wasn't the sneakers. sea of dudes like in like champion sweatshirts with the same like either jeans pegged or like camel shorts and big puffy basketball sneakers and skin. It wasn't like everyone didn't look like that quite yet, but it was going, it was going that way. But like, yeah, when I first came to CBs, you had your, you had your little, you had your little clicks of like, you know, of, of, uh, of people, you know, you had the, it was like these kind of hardcore, like, uh, you know, dust fucking smoking skinheads. He's like, <laughs> it's like where those like Bundeswehr shirts. Remember those things? You know, yeah. like 
yeah and like um and then there were straight edge kids with like you know with their like blonde dyed crew cuts and their champion sweatshirts and then there was like just the old heads that had been hanging out at cbs forever you know old school hardcore people were still there and uh you know then you had you're just like kind of like you know your kind of unique dudes you know like you know your Andrew Scum with his like fucking giant mohawk, or just like you know, you know Russell from Underdog with his kind of like unique skater guy kind of look. Like Hell yeah. it was, there was a different like group. It was different. It it was a lot. Of, it was when I first got down there, and this is like reflected in like a lot of like the artwork that like Bill drew for Breakdown. You know where you had like you know your mohawk guy. Guy, your skater guy, your skinhead guy, your straight edge guy. Like there was a mix, but it did. It did start to get like it's did when when like the sort of like youth crew kind of vibe kind of took full hold. It did kind of get to the point where everyone sort of did look the same for for a bit there. But then now, that changed too, you know. I mean, now you mentioned you mentioned coming out. Obviously, Anthony had been. Uh, a stalwart in New York hardcore years before you guys got on the scene. But what was your first, what was your first Anthony hangout, like a pre you guys playing and he knew who you guys were from hanging at shows. What was your first impression of hanging out with the man? He's another, he's another, like, that's another Don Angelo, like fucking, uh, those guys, those guys were fucking like hanging in front of CVs, Goombas, like, from probably one of the first times we went down there. Um, and, you know, I had listened to like, you know, I had listened to the token entry seven inch and I was, I was really into it, you know, like the, you know, the, the uh, trying to remember some of the songs, like some of the names of the songs, but like, uh, yeah. Um, funny. Yeah. You know, my first, one of the first memories I have of him is really strange because like we, uh, he was like a fan of breakdown. I didn't realize at the time because he's such a fucking ball buster. I was like, I was like, this fucking guy again. <laughs> what is he gonna do now? You know, what kind of shit is he gonna talk? But like uh um when we did play CB's breakdown, we had the song um I had written I had written the song Telltale, which became a, a killing time song, and Jeff didn't have lyrics for it yet, you know. But we, it was such a fucking great show. We were so amped up. We're like, all right, let's just play the song. Like, let's just play the song instrumentally. And, uh, you know, Jeff kind of like stepped off to the side because he wasn't going to sing. And Kaminali was standing right there. Like, so it was like kind of in a weird way. It was like, it was a precursor. It was like, you know, kind of like a, it was uh, something, uh, shades of something to come in the future. Was that a common thing to to play an instrumental? Like, hey, we got a new song, not lyrics. Like, I think so. Yeah, totally. Or, or to play a song twice, like because you know everyone, you know, hardcore bands at the time didn't have a huge catalog. That's pretty badass. So then, obviously, you guys would something would happen internally in the band, right? And it was like half of what would become killing time was on one side of a dispute and that's not so much relevant as like the inner workings of the dispute, but the, the, the times I've read about it, it's been like, Oh, well, you know, there was a disagreement and Jeff went one way and we got, we just kind of rolled right into doing raw deal. Is that kind of how it went? Or is there any like other thought totally. to that? Totally. Totally. 
Um, it's funny, man, because like, you know, when you're fucking young and you're fucking angry and everyone's got their own fucking shit that they're fucking dealing with in their own way. And like the beef really was like, the beef was really between Rich and Jeff, which really is fucking weird because in these recent years, you know, up until until Rich passed away, um, Jeff and Rich were fucking tight, man. Like they, like when we got back together, those guys became like fucking really close, man. But back in the day, like um, they didn't get fucking long. It's like Don and fucking. Don and Don and Rich like uh, gotten the beef over girls, like you know, and like of course, of course, uh, you know Jeff jumped on Don's side, and like, and I was definitely gonna be with Rich, man, because like we were just like I don't know, man, we were really tight. And then like, Drago had to choose, and he chose to stay with uh, with with uh, with me and Rich, and. Uh, yeah, it was fucking crazy, man. It was like shit that shit that makes no fucking sense when you look back on it. Like just like it's all just like fucking just charged by your fucking hormones and your fucking shit. Like, you know, it's like why would we ever fucking why why you get no one can understand why that happened. Um but uh yeah, and like uh, you know, like Don, Don and I were Don and I were tight too. I don't know how it fucking like, but like and we never really had beef, you know, but Jeff and I didn't talk to each other for a long time. But um, but then Dom wasn't in breakdown for a long time after that either. He just did like, you know, he did a couple, he did those tracks for the Revelation comp. Maybe, I don't think he even played a show. Maybe he played a show or two and then that was it for him. And then he didn't play hardcore again until 2010 or whatever it was when we got back together. Which is crazy now. 2010. It's 11 years we've been back together as the original breakdown lineup when the first lineup was together for nine months. Fucking. Well, what's always fucked me up is those six songs that you guys pulled together. I think it's so- nine songs, man. Oh, I'm talking about what that what would come onto the seven inch. You guys did like, I think it's like nine or 10 total, right? Because you had the demo. In nine songs on the demo. Yeah, there was nine songs on a demo. The seven inch had six, and you so you you put that so perfectly because when we think about culturally, there's bands that are around now, thirty years. They got eleven or twelve LPs probably, but people still go back to that seven inch and those tracks, and it was like that that perfect storm, I'd say, for you guys, in the sense where what you guys were all congealing on, you guys being friends, you guys came up together pre-hardcore. And I think that plays heavily into why that first breakdown stuff is so iconic and has lasted so long is that it wasn't a project band, which, you know, when we get into part two with you, we'll talk about that more and like forming something just to have fun. This was like your guys' first real thing. So there was a lot of real invested true interest in it yeah and i and you know the legacy stood for so long that it's awesome that you guys got to come back and do it in the proper way but like breakdowns also it's breakdown and gorilla biscuits are the only two bands 
that made it on both sides of the fence. Like they were both on the way it is. They were both on where the wild things are. And it's, I never thought about that. I mean, yeah, you guys are the only two. And that says a lot about, you know, me, you know, I have a weird, like looking back because I wasn't there for any of it. So like, I look at it like somewhat history, somewhat fan, somewhat obsessed retard, but I look at it and you guys are a lot of the same kind of thing that like Siv and Wally had where Siv and Wally was friends with everybody. You guys were friends with a lot of different people and your sound resonated with both the world, the youth crew world and the, like the legitimate more died in the paint older hardcore of New York hardcore. And so the nine months thing, as you put it in perspective, is a great window to kind of show like, yeah, man, breakdown in, in its initial run was a short run, but the impact is unequivocally one of the most important, I think, in New York hardcore. Well, thank you for that. It's a, but it's a weird thing, right? Cause you, in 86, what were you in 19? Something like that, maybe 20. Uh, no, I would have been 18. Oh shit. So yeah, this go, and this adds another letter to it. Like, uh, we said on the podcast a couple of times, Wally was in breakdown when he was like 17, 18. And, you know, they wrote start today, you know, like it's this perfect window of younger guys, like 17 to 19, writing these unbelievably inspiring music that would go on to be the influence across the entire world for decades. And you guys obviously in the present moment, didn't see it as such. So that argument between Rich and Jeff, that was paramount. Like, fuck you. I don't agree with you. And you have that young anger. Yeah. And you guys didn't really real. And actually it's kind of, I would say as much as though it was a perfect way that it worked in a sense, because raw deal and killing time would take near a hardcore and a completely separate, but similar path. But I think if you guys were looking at it from a, you know what, this band will be one day where people are going to be talking about us in 30 years. No, no. You guys are like, fuck this. I'm fucking mad. Fuck you. We're not going to be friends anymore. And I'm not playing in a band, right? Yeah. Just like that, man. Boom. It's like so fucking, it's, it was so fucking instantaneous going from like playing like our first, our, like, you know, we played all those 12, 13 shows and like, you know, it was all right, man. Some people fucking probably went a little crazy, you know, like, you know, people started dancing and stuff, but like CBs was the first time where I realized that we had any sort of impact other than just being like a hardcore band on the stage because like people just fucking knew all the fucking lyrics. And I was, well, the like, demo was, the demo was out for as soon as you guys were rolling, it was as hard to get the show. Wasn't it until that fucking, it wasn't until that show with a uh, uniform choice that I realized that, while people were buying it and listening to it and like screaming the lyrics back in my face. I was like, what the fuck? Like it was really, uh, it, 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 it was shocking. It, it was, it was, it, I mean, it was like exhilarating and like, you know, it was like, wow. Okay. We, we, we just drove all, we just drove all over the fucking, the fucking Northeast for the last like six months for a reason that people kind of people, people are, this is legit, you know? Um, and, and like, is that is that what we, got Billy? Is that what got Billy thinking about the seven inch? Or were you guys thinking about the seven inch regardless of that response? You know what? No, we weren't thinking about the seven inch at all because uh, the uh, you know the seven inch didn't come out until after we split. Yeah, we weren't thinking about it at all. We were th- like immediately, immediately like after like we split up. Me, me, uh, um, 
me, uh, Rich, and, and, uh, and Drago um, kept playing, you know, kept playing. Like, and, you know, like we had that thing, like, in we had that thing in Albany, like that, like established kind of vibe up there. And like, so we, we like, we like, uh, we got ourselves on a bill in Albany at a, at a VFW hall with the Gorilla Biscuits side by side. I can't remember who else it was. We didn't even have a singer. And uh, and uh, Steve Reddy stood up and became our singer for one gig, you know? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so it was like, that was like, we weren't stopping, you know? And uh, yeah, and we just kept writing the songs. We already had Telltale. And uh, and I think it was, it was uh, you know, going back to like the record store and the, and the sign in the record store band needed, you know, um, that's how we got, that's how we hooked up with Anthony. I mean, we knew Anthony, but like, we, it, it wasn't like, Oh, let's get Anthony in the band. Um, it took like Dwayne, you know, who ran some records, which is, you know, I'm you know, you know, I don't know if you, you ever got to go, but like, that was like so important to like New York hardcore. I mean, Bleaker Bob's was like, like a legit sort of record store that was like a big supporter of like New York hardcore in the early days. But it was, it was just that it was a record store. It wasn't like, it wasn't a clubhouse, you know, some records was a clubhouse. Like everyone, it's somehow everyone that was at CB's would go to some records and somehow fit in that little basement. And like they sold everybody's demo. If you had a de- if you were a New York hardcore band, and you had a demo, um, they sold it there, and they sold every you know every Revelation record. Like I, I don't think they they might have sold some records that were punk or like hardcore from like from other areas, but I don't remember it being anything else other than like a, a New York hardcore store. And it was, you know, run by by Dwayne, who was like, he wasn't your typical like New York hardcore guy, but like he fucking created a place that like helped that scene become what it was. And uh he's the one that I think suggested to Anthony that uh, you know, hey, why don't you go play with the breakdown guys, you know? Um so yeah, another another uh another another instance where like the record star guy like connects people and makes bands happen. It's something that we talk about on this show and we talked about it in uh, our other podcast rule of three, where with the internet now you lose that analog connection to the music, but also thinking about just what we talked about in this, this last hour and a half where we're talking about, the connections made just from being in the record store because you physically have to be in the fucking room with this music and so much changes when you have that kind of interaction and you become friends with the record guy and he knows the shit and that guy's probably like a you know like a like a wizard almost like he knows everything yeah. you know you can go to him yeah. he knows he knows the shit that's oh, coming out he knows the shit that you haven't heard yet because he's sitting in a fucking room all day just rocking he knows, he knows what you already have because he sold it to you yeah, <laughs> he's the original. He's the original algorithm, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, looking at looking at it, um, 
I still think that that was important for you guys to have that kind of beyond New York City connection early. Because, you know, when we get into talking about killing time and stuff like that, like you needed that what's outside of New York City. Because so many bands in the first six years of New York hardcore, how many of them never left? How many of them played less than 15 shows? You know, like that's the thing that I think also stands out in contrast with Breakdown in its first run is that the impact by the time you guys got on, I mean, imagine if your first show was CBGBs and you're staring at like rabies and Amity coming now and they walk out because it's your first show and like this band sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but instead, uh, yeah, it easily happens. What I'm saying is, you know, like in the alternate universe, the fact you hadn't played, the fact that you guys were cutting your teeth in the way that you could, you're playing with no means no. And, you know, one of the bands that I feel like Santa time just so swift, sweeps over some of these bands like New York Hoods. But, you know, like them guys were out there playing shows and it yeah. just, it's, it's timing, it's circumstance. And it's not being in the usual New York City based New York hardcore that I think is the foundation for, you know, where you guys were able to show up. You're playing with uniform choice and fucking boom people, you know, especially then. I mean, every like you said, everybody bought the tapes. Everybody was like a rabid fucking fan for something new because there was so few of it. Right. So I think that that's a big part of the unintentional buildup for you guys to kind of like land at that show. Now I, I haven't thought about it that way, but it's, it's true. We, we got a chance to develop a little something outside of the, uh, outside of the, the spotlight of, 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 of the, of, of the actual scene where we wanted to be. You know? Now, well, obviously our time is limited, so I'm going to keep the last couple of questions that's relevant to that time. Yeah, that's fine. What do you think were like you? You went to the Ritz at that time. Like there was, there were still some big Ritz shows going on, right? It wasn't, it wasn't quite over. Like yeah, Lee, like Leeway Bad was brains. Starting, yeah, it was like Bad Brains, Leeway, and Crow Mags. They were starting to be yes. like monster bands at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, when I, but by the time I got to, by the time I got down there, um. Romags and Agnostic Front, they really, you know, those guys would be outside CBs and stuff, but they really weren't like your average punters hanging out outside every show. They were already fucking, they were already fucking on their way. They were already big, man. They were already playing, they were already playing, uh, uh, you know, playing tours and playing big shows and stuff. Um, but like, I mean the Ritz, yeah. My 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 memories of the Ritz in terms of like hardcore, I cannot fucking get like those bad brains shows fucking out of my head. Bad brains and leeway one night, bad brains and flipper the other night. I think Holy shit from California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, were you did were you cognizant or not really interested in some of the West Coast stuff like the Dead Kennedys? And was, the, were you were you into the germs and things like that at that time? Was that was the LA stuff prevalent in the New York hardcore in the mid eighties, or was it like shit you're aware of but you didn't really listen to? I felt like I did not even see. See, the thing is, like when I when I, when when I was first kind of becoming aware of of, of hardcore, 
it wasn't easy to just know. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be into, it wasn't like I'm going to be into, like, you know, AF and Chrome Mags and, like, you know, and um, trying to think of another big band at the time from New York. There really wasn't. But, like, you kind of grasped that at a bunch of shit, you know? Like, so, I mean, I had, like, I had, like, you know, Circle Jerks in my collection. Fuck yeah, Wild in the Streets. Yeah. Were you, were you, were you, Angry Samoans, you know? Um, were you aware of COC at that time? Because they were kind of yeah, coming around. I got into really early because I, I don't know, like, you know, as, as, as a kid, not, I, well, I wouldn't say that early because I got into them when they, when they, uh, when they came out with Animosity, you know? Uh, oh, and, yeah. and then BRI came out with Dealing with It, I think the same day both those records came out. And that they were like on a they were on a bigger label and those like records got a lot of push, so yeah. So I got into Animosity, then I bought Eye for an Eye, you know. And then as I was saying before, my Twisted Sister came off the back of my denim jacket and the CLC yeah. logo <laughs> came came on there, you know. So yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, like in the, and even before, like I was able to get shit at that like at Mad Platters, like. You know, when you went to a record store, you had to go to like the import section, and these records you were looking at were it weren't imports, but any 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 record that was not on like a, a major label ended up in the import section. I'm so and glad you brought that up. Probably like a, a foot thick of records, so like you just picked shit that you kind of got the sense was going to be hard or fast, you know, and you ended up with a lot of random shit. So th- that's how I got into some West Coast stuff. Um, I was really into DC and all into 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 DC stuff early. Um, Faith Floyd, yeah, Faith Floyd, minor, yeah, minor threat, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I could have listened to that endlessly as uh, as a kid, but um, yeah, I didn't get into the, like the germs like till later. Like you know, Kamiyali kind of turned me on to the germs because he really liked a lot of that West Coast stuff. Um, but yeah, in the early days, you probably. West Coast for me was like Black Flag and Circle Jerks, you know, and I loved both those, both both those, both those, uh, both those bands. I don't feel like I knew a lot of shit. Like it was hard to know shit because it wasn't like you know there was, you know, I mean it goes without saying there wasn't the internet, you know, there was and there wasn't like a lot of like fanzines you could get your hands on that that covered like uh, that covered like um, you know any kind of hardcore. So I mean, yeah. I, uh, you know, it was pretty easy to get to get wild in the streets or, or to get damaged. You know, those were well known. Those were well known uh, um, records. You know, but like, you know, the people would give you mixtapes. You know, like I I got into the Descendants early because of a, a mixtape, and I saw them play at the Anthrax early on. That was really cool. So yeah, I mean, I I felt like you, I I felt like you, you you got such a mixed bag of music, you know, being into like punk, hardcore, metal at the time, just because just by nature of searching, because you to search you had to own shit. You couldn't just you know, it was the place where you were just gonna like someone was gonna give you a sample of stuff, you know, and uh, I think everybody had a less homogenous kind of collection of music that they were into than someone might have today, where they you know they can be into a scene and you know get all the groups and stuff that sounds exactly like one another now i I feel like uh something we talk about a lot on the show because of a previous guest was access and exposure 
what you had access to and what you were exposed to obviously was the things that you're going to like gravitate towards, you know, like, and you're exactly right. Like it's a, it's taken for granted how easy it is to find hardcore now. And yet, you know, then it was limited. And I wonder if, um, at this time period, were the, was there still like that radio show out in like Long Island or was there like a radio show weekly Stokes? I know the noise show was over by that time, but like, was there anybody playing music at the radio level at that time that kind of influenced you? It was all it was, it was WNYU Crucial Chaos. That's right. It was Crucial Chaos at that time. Right. So like that was like your and it was like uh the, the DJ was uh this girl spermicide. And <laughs> <laughs> that was fucking awesome. Heard a lot of music on there. And breakdown ended up playing that in the stu- in the studio down there, which was fucking great. You know, that was so cool. Um, yeah, so I was gonna ask you what led you if you didn't, if you weren't cognizant, where did they reach out to you or did you guys reach out to them? Like, how did you guys end up on the, I think they reached out. I think they probably reached out to us. It's like, you know, as, as, as we got a little older, I always was the guy in the band, like that everyone talked to about like doing shit, you know, like shows or whatever. But like in the early days, I definitely was not that guy. So was it Bill or was it Don? It could have been Bill or Don or even Jeff, you know, well, I feel like um, Bill was like the un, unnamed member at that point. He totally was. Yeah. He was, Bill was with us like fucking on every gig that, that we did for sure. No question. Yeah. His art is fucking so iconic to you guys. <laughs> I know. Well. I love that stuff. I love that there's so many like, you know, imitators too. Like this, you know, people are doing flyers today for shows that look like, look like his old flyers it's it's incredible the little impact like those little small things that you would do when you're a teenager and you guys have done as teenagers and how it's carried on in a legacy and copied now but in a very like you know everybody wants to you know give homage and pay respect because you guys were just doing this organically you know yeah so we're gonna wrap this one up and we know that um this is a shorter one we're gonna bring carl back and when we get Carl back, we're going to go right into killing time and all the fun that comes from that. So, Carl, if you want, we can shout you out, put your internet stuff, or we just like post the band. Anything else you want people to think about? Obviously, um, for those who don't know, we're talking about Rich McLaughlin and he passed. And it's it's something that I, I'm really happy that you were able to like speak on him because his legacy is in all this stuff and he was honestly the everyone says he's the nicest guy like no rich was actually the nicest fucking guy and he was i'm so glad that i got to see him at fya and hanging out with you guys one more time but um any and last words we're, we're gonna we're gonna miss him man it's like he was such a fucking important part of all this music important part of my life and uh fuck, i can't even think about i can't even can't even conceive of like just fucking crazy man um, I don't know. Uh, what do you? Uh, so on you? Do you have any? Time you know, like, time where I, like where is this the time where I hype shit up? Because like uh, that's what I'm wondering. And I gotta say, everyone should go out and buy Killing Times the Method record on vinyl while you still can, because it's out now and it's out on a whole fucking slew of rad different colors, like exclusives that different like distributors have and stuff. And uh, that record, that record meant a lot to us. Um, And it kind of came out at a weird time 
for us and a weird time for Blackout Records. It's never been on vinyl before. I'm really stoked that it's on vinyl now. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, some people get uh, get turned on to it. Because to me, you know, I mean, you know, I know it's not the bright side record. And it came out maybe, you know, five years, six years later. But to me, that's vintage killing time. And there's like a lot of good shit on there. And uh, we'll be playing some of those songs if and when we play again. And uh, we may even do a show sometime where we do that whole record, all 18 songs of it um, in order. Um, so, yeah, I want to just, uh, you know, tell people to, uh, you know, to, uh, to check that out. You know, it's out now. A lot of it's sold through already, but there's definitely some stuff out there you can get. Um, I want to hype up like uh, a band called Gordita Beach. Um, my friend Derek um, and uh, he's a lot younger than me but he's like just a serious hardcore fan and like um, he wrote like a whole I'd call it an EP over the pandemic and like um, and uh, Drago from Killing Time and myself and Chris from Killing Time we went into the studio with him and uh we recorded uh, seven songs and that is going to come out at some point. <laughs> I don't know when it's actually being mixed at the moment. So that's really cool shit. I mean, Derek's idea of that music was that it was going to be like California hardcore, but like when he signed me and Drago and Chris up, it don't sound like <laughs> it shifted a little bit away from New York hardcore. Huh? <laughs> And then, uh, and then I want to, uh, you know, I want to talk about, you know, my band Dread, or Dread LLC. Um, Hell yeah, that's me um, on guitar. It's Davin Bernard from Eating Alive and Kingdom. She has an awesome radio show now too, man. Yeah, that radio show, Mark for Life, is sick. Listen to it. And then, um, you know. Uh, Lars from Judge and from Side by Side and from Uppercut plays bass in that band. Um, and Kenny from Disassociate. Oh, and, shit. Uh, I haven't seen him in years. White Widow's Pact and uh, Ghost Cube. It's a lot of other bands. He plays drums. We had a bunch of shows. Well, not a bunch of shows. We had two shows booked um, right before everything got shut down. So... You know, we're starting to get back going. Um, that's where I'm going tonight is practice with those guys. Um, okay. And uh, so, you know, hopefully we'll have some shows coming too. So, um, and that's like uh, straight up hardcore, different kind of hardcore than Gordita Beach. Both those bands are very different. Um, but I'm psyched about both of them. And so there'll be some yeah, new music. We, we actually were going to do a show with Dread. And then the pandemic hit and we canceled everything. So yeah, I've been waiting waiting to check that out. So what I do with these kind of things, I'll post them all in the show notes for the episode so we can check it out. And Carl, I know you got to run to practice. I'm just happy to talk to somebody like you who had such a big impact in hardcore at your earliest. And you're still fucking ripping and rolling with so many projects. And we're going to, we get into part, when we get into part two, we're going to start right with the beginning of Killing Time, and we're going to go forward. I'm going to link up the stuff for the Killing Time, the Method record, and we're going to be getting Carl's brother, 
Billy Wilson from Blackout on this fucking podcast. He's one of my people I've been meaning to get on. And I kind of wanted to tie two stories together so you'd have an intro to who Bill Wilson is. If you're just thinking, oh, I don't want to listen to another record label fucking podcast. So now you know his importance. We're going to have Billy on the show as well. Carl, thank you for always answering your phone when I call you. Our two-hour conversations about heavy metal and (laughs) for everything you've ever done for hardcore. And I can't wait to have you back for part two, man. But I don't want to keep you from band practice. So thank you for coming on the show. Right on, man. It was great talking. And we're going to speak soon. All right, brother. Be well. All right. Take care. Take care. So there you have it, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the entree main course idea, especially when we've been running shows in the two and three hour period. I didn't want to fall short of that. I know there's tons of people that reach out and tell me how much the episodes get them through their work day and they're excited to hear it. And I didn't want to skimp on content. And between the things that Davin is doing with Mark for Life, and kind of like an interlude to having her on her own show down the road. And just the way that the Carl Picaro story starts and ends perfectly. Like we could start the next chapter right into Killing Time. It just all worked out perfectly. And I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to check out com. That's going to have all our show notes. That's where you can find all the little extras when it comes to the links to the different bands, the opening episodes, yada, yada. It all starts at our website, and that's why we built it. So one of the things that most of you know is that we have another podcast. It's called The Rule of Three. Um, Richie from Post America Podcast, who's been on the show twice on his own and now another two times with The Rule of Three episodes. And OG Gavin from Broad Street Breakdown. We have our own website, which is rule of three hxc dot podbean b e a n dot com. We're also up on the Spotify and the Apple stuff now. So the next time we'll have a rule of three, I'll probably put it up on the feed, but not on the actual podcast feed, but we'll let you know. So thank you for supporting all of our podcasts. Make sure you're checking them out. Make sure you listen to the Mark for Life episode, and I'll talk to you next week. And for those of you who are still supporting or would like to support, patreon.com slash this is hardcore. Thank you so much. See you later.